morning. My name is Jeff Patton. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And uh, <clears throat> as we sang this morning, I uh, had two thoughts. I had one, uh, we got just a drop of what it would be like in eternity, singing holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb. And uh, secondly, I thought where I'm from, we didn't really do the He is risen. We, we did the He sure enough ain't dead no more, right? So... <laughs> If you're from that background, feel free to join me, and uh, it's another way to say it. Well, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have been teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are starting today our new mini-series called Lynchpin, the Proof of Our Pardon. And here's what a lynchpin is. It is a pin passed through the end of an axle to keep a will in place. Or it is a person or event that is the most important part of the thing that it represents. In some ways, it holds everything else together. And the resurrection of Christ is the lynchpin of the Christian faith. It is the historical event upon which Christianity actually stands or falls. It is for sure the most important and unique thing about Christianity compared to every other religion. No one else has a risen Savior. Paul put it this way a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is futile and your faith is empty. In the message, it puts it this way. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is smoke and mirrors. Billy Graham once told Time Magazine in an interview, if I were an enemy of Christianity, I would aim to disprove the resurrection because it is the very heart of Christianity. And many actually tried, like Thomas Jefferson, who wrote his own version of the life of Christ. Now, I hope you see the word narcissistic, arrogance, in parentheses there. He wrote his own version of the life of Christ, and he removed any mention of the resurrection. Yet many others also who took offense that there was a cross and a resurrection. Here's why they took offense. They took offense because that cross and that resurrection says you weren't good enough to do it on your own. You were so sinful that God had to send his son to shed his blood for you. And that was an offense to them because they actually trusted in their own goodness and niceness. And in that offense, they spent years investigating the historical facts of the resurrection. And in doing so, they were converted to Christ. Several just off the hand. Frank, Frank Mars, very famous lawyer in 1920, set out to write a, a book <clears throat> or knock over a cup, whatever. <laughs> Probably did both. Every human does that at some point. Uh, set out to write a book to disprove the resurrection in Christ, and instead he came to Christ and wrote a bestseller called Who Moved the Stone? You can buy it still today in print. Simon Greenleaf, the royal professor of law at Harvard, did the same. C.S. Lewis did the same. And at the bottom of your notes is actually resources for you so that you can, every one of these writers, literally tr try to disprove Christianity and in of the resurrection and in terms came to Christ. Well, they weren't the only ones. So here's the deal. The Apostle Paul also faced similar doubters at the church at Corinth. On his second missionary journey, 
in 50 AD, he had arrived at Corinth after leaving Athens. And he, he, he came to Corinth because, one, it was a strategic place. It was a massive commercial center from every person, from every race, tribe, and tongue would intersect the city of Corinth via the shipping industry. So they were the, he was there for that, and then he stayed there typically longer, 18 months, than he did in most places, because in eight, Acts 18 we read, the Lord said to him, Paul, do not be afraid in Corinth, but go on speaking. Stay there longer about Christ, because I have many in this city who are my people, who I call them by name, and we know that many did come to Christ. So here's what we have. We have a church in Corinth that Paul plants and 99.8% of its membership are brand new Christians. You know you're going to have some issues, right? <laughs> and so what happens, Paul gets a report. There's some struggles in the book of Corinthians or the church at Corinth. And Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, to address those. And here, some of them are doubting and denying that the resurrection took place. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 what many have called the most definitive passage on the resurrection in the whole Bible. And we get to begin to look at that this morning and for the next four weeks. So the first thing Paul does, he speaks of the message of the resurrected Christ. Read with me in verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel... I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures." So Paul speaks of the message of the resurrected Christ. And so Paul starts off here, if you would, of reminding the Corinthians that what he is saying now is the very same thing that he said when he was with them for 18 months. And here's the deal with the Corinthians. We know this because of the earlier chapters, especially chapters 1 through 6, they hadn't forgotten what Paul said but they thought they were the smartest person in the room in whatever room they went in. The, the, the Corinthians, as we see in the first few chapters, thought they were so wise and so smart that they even got to this point where they're arguing with an apostle. See, if you and I get to the point where we argue with an apostle, that's our issue, not the apostles, right? That's where they are. And Paul's saying, look, this is the same message. He calls this message the gospel. That simply means good news. And Paul states three things about their salvation, a past, a present, and a future. He says they had believed or they had received, which is the New Testament word for believed, this message in the past. They are now standing on this message in the present, and they are being saved, that's the verb tense, even in the future by this message until they take their last breath. And then he uses this little phrase, unless you believe in vain. What Paul's doing there, he's just using irony. He's saying to them, if your current belief of no resurrection stays where it is, stays put, then you ain't saved because ain't nobody saved. Don't believe in resurrection, there is no salvation. Verses 3 and 4, 
Paul just giving away what he has been given. You can put in parentheses in your notes, maybe normal Christianity. That's as normal as blinking eyes. When we receive the grace of God to us in Christ, we are a conduit and we just, the normal thing is to give it away. The unnormal thing is to keep it to yourself and never tell anyone. Paul says, I'm just giving what I've been given. The message of the good news is of first importance. Now, let me, let me help you this morning with Greek. First importance. You know what it means in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in? It means first importance. It means uno. Number one. Paul's saying this gospel message is the most central, has more priority than anything else because it is God's plan to reconcile a sinful man to himself. There is nothing more important. If you don't believe that, later today, go home and read Galatians 1 and see his response to the Jewish folk who were coming in trying to add something to this message. So to add to it, to take away, to twist it, to distort it, to change it in any way, what it does, it puts people's eternal lives at stake. And Paul was as forceful with the Galatians, and even here, as he was with anyone over the change of this message. And here's the three parts of it. It says very clearly, Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised on the third day. That's the heart of the essence of this message. So when he says, Christ died for your sins... He is saying Christ died in your place, in my place, that he was your substitute, that he died for your sins. And here's, here's what I didn't understand as a young Christian. That he not only died for my sins today, but he died for my sins past, all my sins present, and all my sins future. It's why the scriptures tell us that he died for our sins, forgave our sins as far as the east is from the west. There's no ending to that. And then he uses the second phrase, Christ was buried. This is key because you don't bury a man who's still alive. You bury a man who's dead. And a man can't raise from the dead if he was alive and not dead. Paul said, it's so key you get this. So he, three days he puts in a tomb. A Roman seal is on the tomb. He's guarded by Roman soldiers signifying that Christ was dead. He, look, he didn't make a rally from a flesh wound, right? <laughs> I'm sort of back. No, he was literally dead. And then it says Christ was raised. The resurrection is God's, the Father's amen to Jesus' cry on the cross. It is finished. Other religious leaders, Buddha, you can believe he went in the ground and he decayed. Muhammad decayed. In any other man or woman that you want to put some kind of hero worship on and some kind of trust in, they all decayed. Christ did not decay. He is alive. And the resurrection is God's proof that Christ really was who he said he was. God in the flesh. Then twice in these first four verses, Paul uses this phrase according to the scriptures. And the reason he does, he's pointing back to the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. There are 350 plus scriptures in the Old Testament that speak to the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection 
of Christ himself. And Paul says, so look, and, and this is written 1,000 years before, 700 years before, 1,500 years before. They spoke of Christ. Because God ordained the scriptures and God knew this was going to happen. So he put it in the scriptures. And one of the most famous is Isaiah 53. And in verses 10 and 11, he says this. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Did you hear that word good? The good plan for you and good for the glory of God. God is jealous for his glory. And when he does things no one else can do, it brings him glory. That's why we're saying to him this morning, yet when his life, speaking of Christ, is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. That's you and I and everyone who's trusted in Christ ever. He will enjoy a long life. Dead men don't live long. They don't enjoy a long life. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, dead men don't see. He will be satisfied. Dead men don't feel satisfaction. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear their sins. When a person believes this message of the gospel, as Paul talks about, the New Testament doesn't define the belief, the word belief as intellectual assent, just to agree with some kind of content. Matter of fact, the half-brother of Jesus, James, writes, even the demons believe. Even the demons know this message that we're talking about. The gospel defines, defines New Testament belief with three distinct elements. The first is, uh, uh, it is news. The gospel is good news. There is content there. And you must understand this message before you become a Christian. You just don't become a Christian because you say, I want to become a Christian. There's a content. You must understand it. But then secondly, the second element is there must be an agreement with this good news. Meaning, meaning you see that you are a sinner. You can't save yourself. Christ is the Savior, and you need to trust in someone else's goodness and not your own. Like, you need to get that at a heart level, embrace that. And think, is that really true for me? Like, am I a sinner? Yes. And then those two points actually lead us to the third point of actually trusting in the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins very, very personally, to entrust ourselves to the one, the only one, who can make us right with God. And so, so in the South, maybe even churches worldwide, here's the reality. There are a lot of people, and my parents, I think, were two of them who went to church all their life, but they stopped, stopped at element number one, intellectual assent. They would have answered the questions right, but they had never entrusted Christ alone, by faith alone, for salvation alone. And that's a great question to ask yourself this morning. Paul's point here is there's no gospel message without the resurrection. Easter's a joke, and us being here is a joke. So the message of the resurrected Christ. Secondly, Paul speaks of the appearances of the resurrected Christ. Look at verse 5 through 8. In that he, Christ, appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, 
then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, excuse me, Paul writes, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So the appearances of the resurrected Christ. As I talk, thought about those appearances, I went back to the book of Acts. One of my favorite chapters, Acts chapter 5. The book of Acts is really the story of the blossoming and blooming of the church post-resurrection. In Acts 5, I want to take you there. You can read it later, but let me give you a summary. The apostles are preaching Christ everywhere and anywhere and the reason is they saw the resurrected Christ. And you got to think it wasn't long before that that they were hiding out, scared to death, that they were going to get killed, and now they're preaching in public about the resurrected Christ. Something has happened here. Now, the Jewish high priest had the apostles arrested, took them to prison. Here's what happened. It says an angel of the Lord visited them and opened the doors and let them out. And by the next morning, they're on the street preaching Christ again. The Jewish leaders heard about it. They went to the jail to look, and the soldiers were still standing there at guard. The prison door was locked. So you can imagine, where are the prisoners? I heard they were preaching again. How did they get out? And the soldiers said, I don't know. I mean, I would have loved to have been there. Like God blinded the soldiers, and they didn't know they were gone yet. And then... I love this, verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force. So they, they went and got them again, but this time they said, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Apostles, could, could you come with us? Like anybody that gets out of a jail and nobody knows they got out and the doors are locked, but somehow they got in their back. Like, would you come with me, please, sir? Apostles came. They told them, the Jewish leader said, do not speak of Jesus. And I love this, but Peter, look, not long before he had denied Christ three times and he had cursed, denied the only, didn't even know him, less alone was one of his boys. Then he cursed a little old woman out the third time just to make the emphasis, I don't know the man, but Peter, something has changed in Peter, said, we can't stop speaking of Christ because he is the one you killed. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses to these things. Verse 33 says the Jewish leaders were filled with rage, and they wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, if you know that name, Gamaliel was Paul's mentor. He was the one that trained the apostle Paul. Some have even said that Paul was in this council, and the advice that Gamaliel is going to give them, Paul doesn't hear. Paul actually does the opposite. And so he says to the apostles, put them outside for a minute, said to the other leaders, be careful what you do with these men because there have been others who have raised up, called themselves a Messiah, been killed. But once they were killed, guess what happened? He said all their followers left. It was a nothing burger. Verse 38, so he says this, in the present case, I tell you, 
to the Jewish leaders, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God and it was of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And they have not been able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So it says they beat them. And the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And day after day, they kept preaching. Now, folks, <laughs> that is not the normal response of men and women to take abuse and beating and torture and threatening over a lie. Something had changed. And the change was Christ rose from the dead. Charles Colson, the special counsel for President Nixon during the Watergate scandal, put it this way. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? The quote is on your notes. You can read with me. Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. All 12 of them were beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if, they were not, if it were not true. Watergate embroiled the 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they cannot keep alive for three weeks. They were chirping and singing like spring birds. Not me, not me. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. There were 11 appearances of Christ, including Paul, post-resurrection. Here's four bullet points for passages for you to read over the next few days. John 20, 1 through 19. Easter morning, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. She's weeping. And Jesus says to her, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And she recognizes it's him and she falls at his feet. John 20, 19 through 29, the doors are locked post-crucifixion because the disciples are afraid. <laughs> and Jesus just appears. And he says, peace be with you, Thomas. Put your fingers in my hands and your finger in my side. And Thomas's response, my Lord and my God. John 21, 1 through 14. I love this. The disciples are fishing. Jesus, they're not catching any fish. Jesus comes on the shore. They don't recognize him. He says, yo, put your nets on that side. They do. Might as well try. Get a whole boat full of fish. And at that moment, they recognize it is Christ. Peter takes off his garment, got his little swim trunks on, and jumps in the ocean for him. No questions asked. Luke 24, can you imagine 72 hours after the crucifixion, you think Christ is dead and you're walking on the road to Emmaus about seven miles to, from Jerusalem and you're talking about all that's been going on in the last 72 hours and this man appears and he says, what's going on? And you look at him, what do you mean? It's in all the newspapers, don't you know? He said, no, tell me more. And in that conversation, who was Jesus, they didn't recognize him. He connects himself to all the Old Testament passages. That was me, that was me, that was me. And all of a sudden they recognize it and they said, our hearts burned. 
Why did Mary fall at the feet of Christ? Why did Thomas say, my Lord, my God? Why did Peter jump in the ocean and swim to him? Why did these men say, my heart burned? Why was their response to this risen Christ so dramatic in nature? Yes, they were delighted that their friend was alive when they legitimately thought he was dead. But it was something much bigger, much better, much more profound than just their friend being alive. They knew without a shadow of a doubt from that point forward that he was God in the flesh, that he was who he said he was. That was the cause of their dramatic response. They were overcome with what the resurrection means for their lives, for the rest of their lives. And I say to you this morning, if you're a believer, that is our response too. We need to be overcome with the implications if Jesus rose from the dead, what it means for us. It means we can and we must take everything Jesus said to heart and that this is what life is all about. Tim Keller put it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. The issue on which all of life hangs is not whether or not you like what Jesus said or you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Thirdly, the grace of the resurrected Christ. And I, and I think my favorite few verses in these first 14 First 11, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me was not, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Paul now gives his personal testimony that a risen Savior, when he comes to indwell a person, if he does anything, he changes a person. Here's a man who was persecuting and killing Christians when Christ appeared to him in Acts chapter 9. Paul is looking at the other apostles. Of course, he is one too. But he's looking at the other apostles and he's thinking all of them were well-groomed and equipped and handpicked and trained over a period of three years. That's how they got to know Jesus. But Paul is saying, literally, in the midst of my sin, when I'm on the road to Jerusalem to slaughter Christians, God's people, and to rip his church apart, it was at that moment, as Romans 5, 8 says, in the midst of our sin, Christ died for us, that God struck Paul down with this message of the gospel. Paul calls himself the least he says, I'm unworthy, but by the grace of God and his grace toward me, it will not be in vain. Paul was saying, in essence, I will not waste the grace of God for my life. <laughs> I will not waste it on trivial matters. 
for the rest of my life, I will be about this message of first importance. Paul's also saying he doesn't deserve to be in the inner circle of Christ's followers. When I read that, I thought, neither do I and neither do you. God's grace has been poured out on you if you know Christ. Paul would say to us, I think, I think we say to us because of the resurrection, we say, do not waste my life on trivial matters. <laughs> to those of you who don't know Christ this morning, I want you to know this. I want you to know I can't make you. I can't convince you. And I, I have a little bit, it's a gift and a curse. Some have called it the gift of mouth of the south, and some have called it a curse of mouth of the south. But I, I like to talk, and I like to think that if I talk long enough and hard enough, I can actually talk you into something that you don't want to do. But I can't. I know I cannot make you come to Christ. Matter of fact, what I know that you don't know, and some Christians don't even know this, you cannot even make yourself come to Christ. Your blindness to Him and your hard heart toward Him, He must actually take the blinders off and soften your heart so that you see that you're a sinner. He saved you the world that He rose from the dead and convinced you of that before you can even come to Christ. So your prayer, in essence, is, Lord, help me believe in my unbelief. There's not a person who ever came to Christ because they willed themselves to. It's because Christ, as we sang this morning, called them by name and said, you're mine. And you must, if you don't know Christ, answer the most important question in the world. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? That's it. Matter of fact, because you've been here this morning, if you're, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. As Molly said, investigate and all that. But... But I don't know why you came. I don't know if you just happened to come in Easter morning, driving by, friend brought you, family member brought you. Why, wherever you're here, you're not here just because you chose either. It's the sovereign hand of God that brought you into this room. Now you're hearing this message, and if you stand before Christ, you're not going to be saying, I never heard the message. You'll be saying, no, 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 no. Remember the bald-headed guy, a little country guy, a little overweight? Remember, mouth of the south guy? April 1st is April Fool's Day, but it's not really. Easter Sunday, 2018. You heard it. <laughs> and you have to answer that question. And that's what we're begging and pleading and inviting you to do over the next four weeks is continue to come back to investigate, read those books, and ask the question, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? If you're a believer this morning, a member of fellowship, we're asking you for the next four weeks to do something else. And that is, we're asking you to take this linchpin. Everybody get your, just, mm. <laughs> Make me say a bad word. <laughs> Sorry. Make me say, ouch. <laughs> okay, that really did hurt. So take your linchpin, okay? Here's what we want you to do. We want you for the next four weeks, we want you to put this linchpin on somewhere that wherever you live, work, and play. Could be on your pocket, could be, uh, belt, uh, Kevin says he's going to put it on his phone, on your lapel, on your belt, 
somewhere, wherever you go, every day, not left in your truck, Chuck, okay? All right. But somewhere on you so that someone will see this and they will say, what is that? And you go, I'm so glad you asked because you've told us the hardest part about having a gospel conversation is getting the conversation started. So we've taken care of that for you. And then you're going to say to them, I'm so glad you asked. It's actually a linchpin. And linchpin is blah, blah, blah about the resurrection. As a matter of fact, can I get you a book that would tell you more of that? And we're going to give you a free book. So in volleyball, there's two main acts here. There's a set, which we are doing beautifully, and all you have to do is spike it. (laughs) That's how we're going to do it the next four weeks. Now, let me just add some icing to that cake. How about you, that person you give a book to, you invite them to take them to lunch and have a conversation. You invite them over the next four weeks to sit down and go through this book chapter by chapter because that's not trivial matters. That's what matters. As a matter of fact, I was thinking, what a great way for Fellowship Bible Church to shut down and close the doors. we got 500-plus adults here. If everybody had so many books or so many conversations that we had to buy so many books that we couldn't afford to keep the lights on, and we just go, peace out, Right? A million gospel conversations. I'd love to go out in a flame of the gospel like that. We really want you to go for this. And then in doing so, we want you to email us when you have that conversation at lynchpin, lynchpin at fbcrc.org. Email us and tell us how many books. I had three conversations. I need three books. Somebody will respond to you and we'll get you those books. How about that? And if you had some good little nuggets about your conversation, because look, gospel conversations aren't a success because somebody comes to Christ. We share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to who? To God. The only one that can convict a man or woman of his sin. So this morning, I want to encourage you to ask the question, so what? If you're a believer What does the resurrection mean for you? And if you don't know Christ, I will tell you your so what. Your so what is, did Christ raise from the dead? And you asking and answering that question. Come and join us for the next four weeks. Take a minute to do just that.